This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, Haiti, a country whose popularly elected president was overthrown by the United States in 2004, suffers under yet another leader imposed by the U.S. who wants to change the Constitution to make himself even more powerful. And the death of the dictator of the African nation of Chad has France and the United States worried about how they'll keep control of the volatile Sahel region. But first, the corporate media would have you believe that President Joe Biden is the spitting political image of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But veteran activist Margaret Flowers of Popular Resistance rejects that comparison. Flowers says the Biden presidency is as corporate as they get. Biden basically reassured all the business class that everything would just be fine and not to worry too much about change. And that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of, which is typical, I think, from the Democrats, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric, but nothing of substance. And so, you know, whether it comes from healthcare, we'll, he'll say one thing, you know, everybody should have healthcare. And then what does he put in place? He wants to give more money to the health insurance industry to try to, you know, get them to cover more people, kind of incentivize them to offer more plans or help people to pay for their insurance premiums. But none of that changes subsequently our healthcare system, none of that actually makes it possible for people once they've purchased that health insurance to be able to cover the out-of-pocket costs, you know, to use that health insurance. So this is just more throwing more money at a failed healthcare system, you know, when it comes to his foreign policy. Of course, he's he's just doing exactly the same thing, you know, pretty much that President Trump did, continuing the economic war and to expand military operations in the Middle Middle East, to, you know, expand their operations in the, now they're calling it the Indo-Pacific, but, you know, surrounding China, antagonizing Russia as well. And then, you know, comes to the climate crisis, he just sounds really great, and he's got people all excited about, you know, the climate president, but you look at his actual proposal, and it still falls extremely short from what we need as the window to act on the climate crisis continues to close. On the domestic front, though, the corporate media are like one big chorus uh, calling Joe Biden the second coming of Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, my. (laughs) I haven't seen any, any evidence of that yet. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens with this new infrastructure plan he's rolling out. But, you know, when it comes to giving people the economic support that they need to get through the pandemic, to get through the current economic crisis that we're facing. We are just not seeing that investment or seeing, you know, real substantive action on making sure that workers are earning a living wage, that, you know, people who can't work are, you know, getting some income to get them through this, that, you know, people are able to stay in their houses. I mean, none of the things that, just the basic things. I mean, let's look at the student debt crisis. President Biden has the sole authority to dismiss all the federal student debt. It's already been paid for out of our dollars. You know, it's it's why are we still continuing to, to hound People in a recession and in an environment that for quite a while has not had, you know, high quality jobs and not enough jobs, 
why are we you know insisting that they pay that back which is just strangling our economy from the bottom the whole generations of people that can't afford to buy a house or a, a vehicle or start a family you know, it's just it's it's cutting off just the essential we're an economy that depends on people buying things unfortunately we're a consumer economy and we're cutting off the ability of a whole generations to participate in that Yes, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, which happened in a period of intense grassroots activism and pressures from the left, that period was one in which the working class was further strengthened by administration policies and became capable of independent uh, action because of many of these reforms. But what we see with Joe Biden's legislation is, relatively speaking, lots of money changing hands, but workers are no more capable of fighting back against capital. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look throughout the history of the United States and, of course, with other countries around the world, the major changes that the major gains that we won were all preceded by very strong movements. Look at, you know, the the labor and socialist movement in the early 20th century that really created the environment where FDR felt like he had no choice but to take action. It wasn't that, you know, coming from a banker family that he really wanted to do these policies, but he felt in such that the environment gave him no choice. Look at the civil rights movement and, you know, how that played a key factor in getting Medicaid and Medicare in the 1960s, you know, as well as as other gains. We heard before the election last year, all the Democrats were saying, well, all we have to do is get him elected and then we're going to push him. It's not just writing nice letters to Joe Biden and saying, thank you for saying climate. That's going to push him to do what we need to do. There needs to be a solid movement demanding these changes. And we're not seeing that mobilization. Folks were so happy to come out and march in the streets, you know, parade really when when President Trump was in office, but we are not seeing that kind of mobilization under Biden, and that's why, you know, I think, and you've talked about this, uh, these types of administrations are more effective at putting in place policies that hurt the people and and build up the wealthy class because folks just kind of go to sleep or go along with it. So. You know, I'm happy to see workers trying, you know, the Amazon workers and other workers that are on strike, but we need much more solidarity and support for them and, you know, much more organizing to, to get any of the gains that we need. By some measures, China surpassed the United States in economic terms a couple of years ago and will certainly surpass the U.S. in gross domestic product terms in a very short period of time. And it appears that the U.S., its ruling circles, have accepted that verdict of history. Uh, And their response, it appears as well, is more belligerency, more militarism. Well, that's, I mean, that's the way it it always is when you have, you know, these countries that are, you know, the threat of a good example. I mean, China has pretty much eradicated poverty. You know, they actually have a plan. You know, the Chinese government uses central planning to look at what the problems are around the country and then make a plan for how they're going to try to address it, which is completely the opposite of what, you know, the United States does. It's like, well, let's give more money to these different industries and hope that they provide more for the the people 
who need them, but, you know, it's always done at the expense of the workers being exploited and privatization that ends up rising, raising the prices for people. China is different from that. They have a much more planned uh, and centralized economy, and so they're able to do this. So the United States, you know, doesn't have any other real foreign policy tool, doesn't really cooperate, doesn't use diplomacy, doesn't believe like the, the Chinese government does in building a strategy that's beneficial for everyone. The U.S. is just out there using its big guns and, and you know, trying to force our way uh, into getting what we want. And, and so, of course, that's going to be the response to China. And we're seeing Biden offering up another budget for the Pentagon that's giving, you know, again, tens of billions of dollars more than what the Pentagon already has. And this is really not only is it eating up the federal dollars that we need to be using critically for healthcare, education, housing, income, all of this food, but it's just fueling, you know, this industry, this military industrial complex weapons industry that is just, you know, it, it's taking over and it's it's leading to militarization here in the United States. So it's hurting us in so many ways. And, uh, and Biden is just going to be very effective, I'm afraid, at persisting and, and continuing to build that like the past presidents have. China had a plan very quickly for COVID-19, uh, the epidemic that began, it appears, on Chinese soil and escaped most of the consequences of that pandemic, uh, both medical and economic, and probably will be responsible for pulling the world out of the recession that arose from the pandemic. But the story in the United States is far different. Absolutely. I mean, the we can't i can't emphasize enough that the situation that we have right now with the covid-19 pandemic could have been completely avoided if we had taken it seriously early on listened and learned from what china and other governments did that were effectively handled it and you know and and put in place programs there were countries that even took their parts of their healthcare system that was private and made them public because they knew that a privatized healthcare system would not serve the interests of the people. So we could have done this and we could still play a role in helping to eradicate the pandemic globally. There's an effort going on right now, over 100 countries pressing the World Trade Organization to waive the patent rights for the vaccines and medications that are needed for COVID-19, but the United States and its, you know, Western allies are fighting that instead of recognizing that that hurts all of us because as long as the virus can proliferate somewhere, it's going to continue to mutate. It may evade the immune responses from the vaccines that we're giving. There's so many reasons why we should be participating and, and cooperating with other countries instead of competing with them and hoarding the vaccine and holding on to these patents. It's just, it's again, it's, you know, the United States harming people around the world and ourselves through these greedy policies that we put in place and ineffective policies. Well, you're a veteran activist, which means that you need the ability to assess uh, as well as you can, the popular mood and what the people are thinking. And this past year, the year from hell, as they call it, and the U.S. performance during this COVID and recession year has to have shaken up Americans' view of their country. Well, I think more and more people are starting to recognize that we live in a failed state, that what we're doing is not sustainable, that you can't 
you know, people just can't be squeezed anymore. They can't be not denied anymore. Uh, they can't be put into debt anymore. And so, you know, we do see around the country people really working hard in their communities and, and also to build these regional and national networks um, to fight back. And, there, you know, despite the pandemic and the recession last year, we, we saw quite a lot of people fighting back in different sectors, uh, you know, particularly teachers comes to mind, but also, you know, workers and the gig workers. Um, and so we are seeing that, that we need to continue to build that. And um, that's the way that we're going to get the, the social change that we need. Much is still being made about the rather small group of left-ish Democrats in Congress who haven't achieved much in terms of legislation, but still have the sympathies of lots of people who call themselves leftists. But certainly in terms of foreign policy, their worldview seems almost as bellicose as the right-wing corporate Democrats like Biden. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to foreign policy, I think every Democrat in Congress pretty much has been, you know, cowed by that and just gives in completely to the current foreign policy strategy. I mean, if you look at, you know, AOC, who's supposed to be such a great progressive, and she basically says, well, I'm going to do what Nancy Pelosi says when it comes to foreign policy and, and also, you know, perpetuates the myths about these countries that have citizen revolutions that have been trying to put in place a more socialist type of government. You know, she, she just apes the, the rhetoric that we hear of, you know, calling them dictators and human rights abusers and all that, that, you know, those lies that are used to justify the U.S. wars against them. You know, the, the progressive Democrats and all the time that I've been activist as an activist, I have not seen the progressive Democrats do anything substantive. They'll talk and talk and say, you know, we should have these things, but okay, when are you going to actually organize and start making it happen? They don't. So I think if anybody thinks that electing ourselves out of this situation is the strategy, you know, you're just fooling yourselves so that once they get into office, there's so many ways that, that members of Congress are controlled, whether it's trying to get access to being on relevant committees or they may have some pet issue that they want some movement on. And so they want, they, they are timid. They won't stand up to the power structure Well, they become part of the power structure as soon as they're in there. So just like we've seen in the past, it is always the people rising up on the outside, organizing and making demands that changes the political culture, that forces the people that are in power to make the changes that we need to make. So that's the answer is to continue to organize. Don't, you know, waste your time trying to elect progressive people just keep organizing and building alternatives in your communities and pressuring and, and educating and, and making the environment one that people make the demands that we have to have these things or we're going to shut things down. That's how it happens. That's how it's happened throughout history. Yes, last year, 20-something million people turned out in the streets to protest George Floyd's murder by a cop. And that was unprecedented in the history of the United States. So folks are ready to make their feelings known publicly. And I was so impressed by the people that were out protesting last year around this issue because they were met with very serious state 
repression and still they were out there night after night despite the rubber bullets and the tear gas and the the arrests and the harassment people continued to go out and fight and that's why we're seeing some movement on these issues that's why the you know the cop in in uh, Minneapolis was charged with those murder charges that's pretty unprecedented most of the time please just get away with this if they're even charged at all so we are seeing some change but again you've got to keep keep it up keep building that's how it's going to happen don't back down until we win that was margaret flowers of popular resistance speaking from baltimore the haitian people have been protesting almost nonstop ever since jovenel moyes was named president after winning only a small fraction of the nation's voters in an election fraught with irregularities in 2016. moyes now proposes to change haiti's constitution so that he can rule with immunity from prosecution for crimes. We spoke with Daoud Andre, a Brooklyn-based radio host and an organizer with the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti. Andre says Washington calls the shots in Haiti. Well, U.S. policy is U.S. policy. This is what uh, we have always said, Glenn, at Komokoda, the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship, we had always said it's just a matter of style. You know, Barack Obama has a, a kind of cadence and some beautiful words, fancy words, to kill people and to deport people to the point that he earned the title deporter-in-chief. But Donald Trump you know, he was a little more crude, you know, in the way that he did the same thing. And same way we have Joe Biden now, and U.S. policy has not changed towards Haiti, whether it is in a standing with the puppet government that was, in fact, installed by the Obama-Biden administration in 2016, and in the way that it continues to deport Haitians and other immigrants out of the United States. In fact, with regard to Haiti, we understand that in the short months, we understand this week was 100 days of Joe Biden in office. But from the first 60 days, he had already deported more people to Haiti than Donald Trump had deported in all of 2020. And right now we understand that number is way over 1,500 people. And so we did not expect any change in policy. And we said that to many Haitians, many other people who are going crazy over Biden as if, you know, Trump called Haiti a troll and that Jovenel Moise, the puppet who they have in, in the office in Haiti, was Trump's lackey. And we had always said Jovenel Moise is not Trump's lackey. He's a lackey for the United States. And so whoever is there, it would be the same. Many Haitians, they campaigned for Joe Biden. Some of them even like cursed us out telling the people that Joe Biden will be elected today and tomorrow, Jovenel Moise is going to have to leave office. But U.S. policy he has with regards to Haiti, and we can say the rest of the world as well, has not changed. So this is 
on that front. And till today, while we see there's some Congress people in Congress and the Senate of the United States who have a kind of language that seems like, sounds like they are standing with the people of Haiti. But in fact, the U.S. government itself, its policy remains the same. Joe Biden came in, he found the puppet that he had helped to put in in office, and the puppet is still doing the work of the United States, so he's standing firm with him. You know, they speak about some things they don't like, some things they don't agree with, some things they'd rather see done differently. But the fact is, they have a puppet in place. And that puppet is willing to continue to stand to claim that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. So why change him? Why rock the boat? This is U.S. policy. The puppet you're speaking of, Jovenel Moyes, would, under almost any other circumstances, except the firm support of the superpower, uh, be judged to be at the end of his rope. But he's pushing for a change in the Constitution that would make him even more powerful and immune <laughs> from prosecution for whatever he might do. Yes. So Jovenel Moyes is pulling out of a hat a new constitution, a new constitution that we are told there was an English version of it before there was a French version. And of course, the people of Haiti speak Creole, so you know they're not at all concerned about this. But anyway, there's so much resistance, pushback against this new constitution that Jovenel Moïse is who is illegitimate, illegal. You know, he handpicked a handful of people that he says they were the Constitutional Commission, and he handpicked an electoral council, provisional electoral council, just out of a, a hat, you know, like cronies. And supposedly these are the people who, what can we say, independently came up with this garbage. And as you said, this is in it, of course, there is immunity for heads of state who have stolen, like Martelly, like Jovenel Moïse, that you cannot prosecute them while they're in power. You cannot prosecute them while they are no longer in power. And of course, to make it look like it's in favor of the women who have been for so long left out of the political process, they say that, you know, in this new constitution, there is guaranteed participation of 50% for women. <laughs> they said that they've lowered the age that a person can become a senator, legislator to 25 years to see if they can get the participation, the, the support of the youth and the women. And they went so far as to say that the, for the first time in our country, since the country's existed, 1804, even if you have a passport from another country, like you, you became a U.S. citizen or Canadian or whatever, you can run for president, you can run for senator, you can become a minister in government. 
to see if they can get the support of of these sectors. So, because the whole thing is a fraud, you know, they know that there's no way. Because remember, by their own numbers, they said out of a population of 12 million people with about 8 million eligible to vote, that's what they said, 550,000 people voted for Jovenel Moise in 2016. Imagine that. And with that kind of mandate, you know, they feel he can change constitutions, you know, he can do this, he can do that. But it's a fraud. And the Haitian people understand it's a fraud to the point that right now, the U.S., you know, the people who are popping him up, they're saying, yeah, they still want the elections to happen in 2021. But nobody, even like the fake opposition, the mild opposition inside the country, they're like, they're not going to elections with Jovenel Moïse. But even the U.S. and the U.N., they're pulling away from support for the Constitution. They're saying this is just complicating matters, you know, let's leave this out and let's just work on making the election happen. But I really don't think you will have the referendum for the Constitution that's planned for the end of June. And you really, you know, although they have a lot of U.S.-backed opposition parties, quote-unquote opposition, who are being created as we speak, I, I don't think they can even do this fake election that they are planning for September and, and November. I would bet good money that Haiti has the lowest electoral participation rate in the world at only 18%. It makes U.S. elections uh, look yeah, like... Look good, right? Yeah, look good, <laughs> which shows that the Haitian people have totally lost any enthusiasm or faith or put any credibility in the election processes uh, since 2004, when the U.S. overthrew the broadly popular elected president. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is that, you know, the last legislative elections in Venezuela (laughs) that happened last year, it's so funny, you know, Jovenel Moïse, who, and this is about like a 5% participation, you know, like ridiculous stuff that he had. And he said that, you know, again, to show how good a lackey he is to the United States, he said Haiti will not recognize the results of this election because not enough people participated in this election. You know, the turnout was too low. So, I mean, Jovenel Moïse is a joke in Haiti, and it would be funny joke if it were not for the the crimes, the massacres, the kidnappings, the rapes that are being used to prop up this regime, to keep people out of the streets in the protests, and to keep the population terrorized so that only the people that are allowed to 
go and vote, can go and vote, and they can just have like a free terrain to do what they're doing. But at the end of the day, Glenn, what's important to say is that this is not Jovenel Moïse acting. This is the policy of the United States and the United Nations, which is a tool of the United States, the OAS, the core group in Haiti. And this is why it, it feels like Jovenel Moïse is like a strong leader. He's like, he's not taking any mess from anyone. He, I mean, this week, two days ago, the new clown who's just been put in as a prime minister after the last clown resigned last month, he put out a letter that Haiti is a sovereign country. We will not bow to any foreign power who is trying to derail our democratic process. It's like little cloud, you know, and people are laughing when, when they see this kind of theater, you know, how low these people can get. I mentioned the core group a couple of times, but some listeners might not be aware. But in Haiti, the United States, of course, has set up a cabal of uh, countries and institutions to back up whatever is U.S. policy in Haiti. And it's like they have the final say. After, you know, the U.S. has spoken, the core group has spoken, it's like that is law. So the core group is a representative of the Secretary General of the United Nations, ambassadors, representative of the OAS, Luis Almagro's representative, ambassadors from Brazil, Canada, France, Germany, Spain, the European Union, and of course, the U.S. ambassador. So these are the people who run this kind of government. There is no semblance of, of sovereignty in Haiti. And the people of Haiti understand that Jovenel Moïse would have never been there. I, I don't even want to say he would have been long gone, but he would have never been there. Martelly spoke uh, the truth when very early in his administration, I think it was 2012, a year after he was imposed by the Clintons, by Obama as president of Haiti, he, and there were huge protests in the streets, like hundreds of thousands of people. And he said something like, he doesn't care how many people are in the streets, so long as the heavyweights are backing him up, nothing's going to happen. And that is what is still going on there. That's why people are still, you know, organizing, because, it, of course, it gets to a point where the heavyweights, they realize that they're going to lose everything if they stay with these clowns and they will let them go as they have done everywhere else so many times in the past. Yes, the people of Haiti are visibly opposed to the regime in overwhelming numbers. But in addition to all of the imperial players, the U.S. allies internally in Haiti and around the world, the regime has also had to call upon the gangster elements. Yeah. So in addition to the Haitian National Police, that is, of course, a 
paid for, armed, trained, uh, clothed, and fed by the U.S. and the core group, yeah? Uh, there's a beautiful picture of a graduation ceremony at the uh, National Police where the U.S. Ambassador Michelle Sisson is there, and every new police officer who's coming, being sworn in, comes in front of her and salutes her, you know? <laughs> it's like you say, where else does that happen but in a school, you know? Imagine, like, the ambassador from Russia being there at a NYPD or at a FBI graduation, you know? So in addition to the fake Haitian police, to the fake army they have there, what they have found in recent years is that it's much more effective to use ununiformed gangs to terrorize. It started in the popular neighborhoods, massacres in Cité Soleil, in Bel Air, in Garavine, in, you know, different La Saline. But of course, it doesn't stay there, you know, and the kidnappings, and it's like everybody is getting kidnapped in Haiti, except the people with the money to pay the kidnappers. <laughs> so that should give you a clue that this is not, you know, a real something, because I think everybody in Haiti knows the 10 families with a million dollars that they can give you for a loved one, you know, in two or three days. But none of these people are getting kidnapped, you know, like street merchants selling water, selling food in the street, like little kids going to school, young student, young lady was just, they found the body. I mean, this is just sad the way that this is happening. I'm talking the latest one nursing student, Marlene Fluanista, but they found her dead body. It seems that if the family cannot come, they ask a million dollars. They kidnap you. They don't care, you know, if you've never seen $500 or a $100 bill in your life, you know, they'll ask for a million U.S. And then, you know, they negotiate, you know, you, you give them $10,000, the person is returned. So this is what's going on. And why we say the kidnappings, the gangs, I mean, there are so many reports that have come out of who's responsible for this, which gangs, but there's a particular federation of gangs that is headed by a former policeman by the name of Jimmy Cherizier. Barbecue is like a nickname that he goes by. And what's important is that this federation of the gangs, it's like nine gangs, and also funny that in the core group that I spoke about, there are nine members as well, and people kind of smirk at that. But the fact is, there is a National Disarmament Commission that was created years back, around 2005 to 2006, I think, when Preval he was in power, came to came back to power, and that was dismantled. But it was reactivated, I think, in 2020. And this disarmament that is supposed to give incentives to the street gangs to give up their guns for going to school, for getting some money to do something. But this called CNDDR, it 
recognizes that it encouraged the formation of the, the federation of the G9. And the BNU, which is now the new name of the UN occupation force, it's supposed to be a civilian thing now, without the minister that was soldiers from all over the world. But the BNU even went so far as to put out a report, you know? I think that was in September of 2020, to say that the formation of the G9 was a good thing for the country, that it actually lowered crime in the neighborhoods that the gangs, the G9 controlled, you know, with their machine guns. And I think you've seen the pictures, Glenn, so many people have seen them. These street kids with barely, uh, they don't even have a sneaker to put on their feet. And they are carrying these big guns that cost thousands of dollars. And people are like, where do they get money to buy these guns? Where do they get money to buy bullets for these guns? But of course, it comes from the government or it came from the government and the bourgeoisie and of course, the international community that needed to terrorize the population in these areas that were standing against the government. What you have now is that some of these gangs, not the G9, because the G9 is still screaming, you know, down with hunger, long live Jovenel Moïse. So there's no doubt that the G9 is working for the government. And there's been a warrant out for Jimmy Cherizier's arrest for three years now since the massacre in La Saline in 2018. And, you know, he's out giving food, like giving kids school bags, along with the police, uniform police. And they go to attack other gangs that they have problems with in police vehicles, with government, official government plates on these vehicles. So there's no doubt that the G9 is still working with for the government and the international community. But there are a couple of these other quote-unquote gangs that now that they've got their guns, they've got money from the kidnappings, from other things they're stealing in the country, they're taking like a more kind of rebellious position. Like, you know, they're trying to go out on their own. We understand that. But the fact is, why don't they kidnap I mean, you know, we don't want them to kidnap anyone. But if you want a million dollars in two days and you're going to get it from kidnapping, it's a small handful of people in Haiti who could give you this money. And so long as we're seeing that these are not the people getting kidnapped, we have to say, you know, something is not, you know, working right here. That was Daoud Andre of the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti, speaking from Brooklyn, New York. For the past 30 years, the oil-rich but dirt-poor nation of Chad in Africa's Sahel region was run by Idris Deby, a dictator backed by both France and the United States. But Deby was reported killed in combat with rebels last week, and his son is now in charge. 
Dr. Gerald Horn, a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, is adept at interpreting political events around the world. Horn was interviewed by Wilmer Leon and Garland Nixon on Sputnik Radio. Chad has had a long-term, long-standing relationship with the neo-colonial master in Paris, Idris Deby, the leader who was killed a few days ago, seized power himself about three decades ago, and since that time, despite immense oil wealth, has presided over a human rights disaster with spiraling illiteracy rates and spiraling mortality rates and spiraling unemployment. However, Idris Deby's army has been essential to France's neo-colonial pretensions, and I might say those of the United States as well, because keep in mind, there are dozens of U.S. military forces in Chad, so-called trainers, as they're euphemistically termed, and Chad's military has been essential in terms of hooking up with France and combating religious zealotry in Mali, in Central African Republic, and keep in mind that when Idris Deby was slain a few days ago, supposedly he was leading his troops into battle. It would be as if Barack Obama, during the Libyan misadventure, was not operating from the Situation Room in the White House, but had parachuted into Tripoli in order to lead the forces against Colonel Gaddafi. And apparently, while leading his forces into battle against rebels, who, by the way, are probably, as we speak, about 150 kilometers from the capital in Jemena, supposedly he was killed. Now, I say supposedly because, inevitably, when you have a leader like Idris Deby leads from the front, a number of so-called conspiracy theories have arisen, uh, such as that his own military shot him in the back <laughs> as he was leading the forces into battle, or alternatively, given that his son replaced him as head of a military junta after Idris Deby's uh, being killed, uh, there was another theory that this was a reverse Marvin Gaye scenario. Remember how the singer Marvin Gaye was slain by his father? Well, now the theory is, is that the son, in this case, turned the tables on the father. Uh, and that particular theory has gained altitude because about a decade or so ago, Idris Deby's nephew was leading a rebel force seeking to overthrow the Chadian leader. And I'm afraid to say that not only France, but the United States is implicated because these rebels were trained in Libya. And they might not have been trained in Libya, but for the disastrous, catastrophic overthrow of the Gaddafi regime by the Obama administration and his NATO allies in 2011, uh, which has converted the Libya into a kind of bleeding sore on the continent and a source of instability on the continent. And so what happened is that after being involved in military maneuvers in Libya, uh, these uh, so-called Chadian rebels then migrated uh, southward into Chad and still might be on the verge of uh, overthrowing Idris Deby's regime, I mean, excuse me, the son of Idris Deby's regime. And keep in mind as well that this will have enormous repercussions because the Chadian military, who are some of the most battle-hardened 
well-trained forces in that region have not only been essential in terms of Mali, as noted, and the rebel forces from Chad and Libya, as noted, but also aligning with Nigeria in terms of fighting the Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. And there is a quite illustrative and informative article in this morning's Financial Times talking about not only the religious zealotry that's destabilizing Africa's most powerful economy, speaking of Nigeria, but also how kidnapping has become a major industry, not only in the north, but also in the southwest of Nigeria. And so the Chadian military was very useful in terms of helping to stabilize Nigeria. Now, with Idris Debi gone, it's unclear how that's going to play itself out. So, unfortunately, this killing of Idris Debi has not gotten sufficient publicity on this side of the Atlantic, but certainly it's important. And I might also make one last point, which is also illustrative of broader Pan-African trends. And what I mean is, is that in the post-1960s era, when African nations were surging to independence, that whole Sahel region, which includes uh, Chad, uh, had a political leadership that was intensely concerned about redistribution of the wealth. They were oftentimes uh, slandered and defamed as Soviet puppets and stooges and were subsequently liquidated. You saw a similar process unfold, for example, in Mozambique, due southeast, where the Frelimo Party was socialist-oriented under Samora Michel. He died mysteriously in an airplane crash in the mid-1980s. Now, we see headlines about religious zealots on the march in northern Mozambique allied, they say, with Islamic State who behead children. That has led, once again, France to try to pull out of a multi-billion-dollar energy deal in northern Mozambique. The regional partners, including South Africa and Zimbabwe, are thinking about intervening militarily. But then that could then bring uh, so-called terrorist attacks upon Harare and Pretoria. So in some ways, Chad is a microcosm of failed North Atlantic policies, not least in Africa. Dr. Horn, I'm going to read a, a statement by Joe Biden. It is absolutely, it is clear, absolutely clear. This is a battle between the utility of democracies in the 21st century and autocracies. That's what it's at stake here. We've got to prove democracy works. So the Biden team and then has been arguing that they are standing up worldwide for democracies, but for some reason that never like applies to brown parts of the world. To Africa, it's still you know they use modern words like regime change, but it's still colonialism. When you look at um, South America. America, Central America, the Caribbean, democracy would mean that the people of Haiti get to actually choose their own leader. And here we see in Chad that this guy has been in charge since the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air premiered, and there is no thought. And so once again, there are a lot of details here, but we see this lay bare the lie that the U.S. is so-called out pushing for democracies. It seems to me that we're still in the colonial world in Africa, and that, that doesn't, they don't appear to inclined to change that anytime soon. Your thoughts? Well, I must say is that J.R. Biden must be dipping into the former stash of Hunter Biden. Uh, that is to say that he must be smoking his drapes if he believes that shop-worn rhetoric that you just cited is making. Uh, certainly, if you look at the sweep of U.S. foreign policy, 
the U.S. foreign policy has had no quibble or quarrel with supporting autocracy. Recall its decades-long alliance with apartheid South Africa, autocracy personified, its decades-long alliance with colonialism in Angola and Mozambique, not to mention its indirect, if not covert aid, to the Rhodesian regime in pre-1980 independent Zimbabwe. So I think that you really cannot take what Mr. Biden said seriously. And that is why after 100 days in office, I think that even those who are easy graders with regards to foreign policy are prone to give him a D minus. It would be lower, but there hasn't been a nuclear war yet. Whenever I try to get some understanding of events such as these, I always go to the map and I want to try to understand the geography and the the geopolitical aspects here. So when you look at where Chad is located in the center of the continent and then who it is surrounded by, and we know, for example, it doesn't have a direct border with Egypt, but it is close to Egypt. It borders Sudan, Libya, Niger, and the United States is is selling weapons to Egypt. What does this mean for the United States policy on the continent going forward? What are your projections here? My projections, I'm afraid to say, are not necessarily optimistic from the point of view of humanitarianism. Uh, That is to say, uh, I'm no fan of the religious zealots who are on the march in Africa as we speak. But at the same time, we need to realize that previous North Atlantic foreign policies helped to create this ideological vacuum that the religious zealots are now filling. And with the weakening of the Chadian military, which is noted as some of the most battle-hardened soldiers in that part of Africa, it would not surprise me at all to see religious zealots of one kind or another surge into power. And keep in mind as well that in light of this new focus in the North Atlantic countries on climate change, Niger is a major producer of uranium, which some, some in Washington see, is helping to provide a nuclear option to produce the electricity that will be needed to propel all of these electric vehicles, uh, not to mention propel the economy as a whole. And so... I don't see any turning away uh, from that part of Africa because it's just too economically important to the economies of the North Atlantic countries, particularly as noted as they begin to focus on climate change. What do you think about as far as the future of the, the government of Chad? Do you think that it's going that this is simply going to be the military is going to do their installation of who's in charge and move forward? Or do you think that, you know, there could be a breakdown of, of or, what little order there is in Chad? It's hard to say. I mean, if you take any of these rumors seriously, then you may have suspicion that what happened in Chad was a kind of coup d'etat. And coup d'etats tend to breed a certain kind of instability by themselves. And in any case, what remains of civil society in Chad, particularly the unions, are angry that the Constitution was circumvented and the 37-year-old son of Idris Debi was installed in power, uh, which was totally at odds with the Constitution, although France has signed off on it and the United States has been quiet about it. 
And given those curious factors, do not be surprised if there is a continuing spate of instability in the heart of Africa. In fact, his son was installed, but from from what I understand, uh, his his whole his grasp on power is not that secure. That there are that there are members of the military, or at least the rebel factions, that his father was allegedly taking the the troops into battle. That he still has those factions to to face. Well. You should not be surprised with the fact that when many leading members of the military wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, they see reflected a future leader of Chad. And they do not necessarily see in that mirror an image of the 37-year-old son of Idris Debi. So if I were the son of Idris Debi, uh, I would try to buy a life insurance policy to take care of my children. I would watch my back. And I might actually want to take a long vacation in France. Black politics is a vibrant force in the United States, including behind bars. Bilal Abdul Salem Bey is incarcerated in Hutchinson, Kansas. He's a member of the new African Black Panther Party and filed this report for Prison Radio. This piece is called What We Want, the first part of the 10-point program for the NABPPPC. Number one, we want power to determine the destiny of new African communities. Two, we want full employment for all our, all our people. Three, we demand housing fit for the shelter of human beings. Four, we want new African men exempted from military service. Five, we demand decent education for new African people, an education that teaches the truth about this decadent, racist society and teaches new African children their rightful place in society. Six, we want an end to the robbery of new African people in their own communities by white business interests. Seven, we demand an end to police brutality and the murder of new African people in America. Eight, we demand the release of all new African men and women held in city, county, state and federal jails and prisons. Nine, we demand the trial of new African people before new African juries, trial by one's peers, by one's peers who comes from the same economic, social, religious, historical, and racial community. Ten, we want land just as we want clothing, housing, education, justice, money, and peace. What we believe, we believe that new African people will not be free until we are able to determine our own destiny. We believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. We believe that if the white American businessmen will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessmen and placed in the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its people and give a high standard of living. This concludes the first part of what we want and what we believe. Again, this is Bilal Abdul Salam Bey. Those wishing to reach me about this topic may do so by writing Charlie Hughes, C-H-A-R-L-E-Y-H-U-G-H-E-S, number 96576, P.O. Box 1568. 
Hutchinson, Kansas, 67504. Thank you for your time, effort, and energy. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.